I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's The Wonky Show. Duty of care has been discussed in Parliament. We'll examine the implications. Uh, There's media interest in UKHE from across the pond. We'll work out what that means. Uh, Plus, we've been getting all interdisciplinary and there's a new free speech czar. It's all coming up. Everybody within a university community has a responsibility to support the well-being and mental health of everybody else in that community. So that could be, you know, at the sort of one level peer-to-peer support, but it could be through your academic tutor, it could be through somebody in your stu- um, also residence, it could be somebody in the student union. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and joining me as usual to get across the week's big news, three fabulous guests. In Cambridge, Jonathan Grant is Director at Different Angles. Jonathan, your highlight of the week, please. Well, Jim, I have to say data. Um, I'm part of a team that's got a UKRI grant where we're looking at the benefits and burdens of grant peer review processes. And we got um, the data dump for two of our four surveys. Um, so I have to say, there's nothing quite like that euphoria when you get fresh data. Um, yeah. So that's definitely my highlight. Sort of lost down the rabbit hole. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and in Lancaster, India Ellis is president at Lancaster University Students' Union. India, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, it's been cost of living stuff, actually. So we've got a nice, lovely commitment from our university to continue all of the cost of living work that we've done this year into next academic year, which is a really positive start for the next team. Uh, a bit of a leaving present from me as well. So, yeah. Oh, great stuff. And in Billericay in Essex this week, David Kernahan is deputy editor at Wonky. DK, your highlight of the week, please. Um, a little bit of a nerdy one. Really enjoyed picking through the Wizards review, in uh, which has come out sponsored by the Scottish Government, which is taking yet another look at the way they support and um, regulate the skills sector in Scotland. Link to that in the show notes. So yes, we start this week with duty of care. There's been a debate in Westminster and developments in Wales, DK. There certainly has. I mean, we're back to the idea of a statutory duty of care, which is something that's been talked about a lot in the past. To quickly define that, that's the idea that there should be accepted best practice in mental health provision and student support. If an institution isn't following it for, I mean, whatever reason, it should explain why. And it shouldn't be um, a kind of voluntary add-on. It should be something that... um, um, universities do. Um, we're looking really here for consistency, consistency of expectation. I mean, rather than in the uh, huge number of sad cases where students have died by suicide and the response has been, ah, if only the um, university or college had done this one thing, it sh- should be fair to expect that we know what all those one things are and we should expect um, universities to do them or not. Uh, there are various uh, kind of voluntary frameworks for this um, knocking about. University of the UK has one uh, that uh, attempt to set out best practice in this area. In Wales, this is about to become more formalised. There was a report a couple of months ago. The government has responded. They are going to develop a framework for what um, universities are actually expected to do here, which sets a baseline but allows for um, university-by-university university variation based on specific circumstances. And it's also going to collect consistent um, data on student mental health issues. As you probably know from reading your daily, there's a lot of garbage surveys out there that we can't really trust. So we don't really know how prevalent university um, student mental health issues are or what kinds they are or what we can do to help. In England, we're not quite as advanced as that. There was a debate in Westminster Hall with loads of interesting speakers. There's um, a one corner on the site. Sunday Blake watched it and wrote it up. Uh, Halfen, our minister, said that sector is making process on is making progress indeed on um, a voluntary basis, which appears to be as good as we can expect from England at the moment, which arguably is not really good enough. 
we don't believe that the most effective way to improve student mental health is to introduce new legislative requirements when the sector is making progress on a voluntary basis. While absolutely the sector should and could do more, and we've, I've tried to set out some of the things that we are calling for, providers are still innovating and improving, and there's not yet a consensus on which interventions are most effective. This is the point I'm trying to explain to my honourable friend. That's no excuse for not doing anything or inaction, but it does mean that a one-size-fits-all for approach may not achieve the best results and support for students suffering from mental health difficulties that all of us want to see. As I say, we have got other pieces of legislation already in place on equalities and on negligence. I expect universities to rise to the challenge I've, that we've set for them uh, today as organisations with an obligation to do the right thing for their students. And as I've mentioned, that if we don't see the improvements expected, I will not hesitate to ask the Office of Students to introduce a new registration con condition on mental health. And it's vital that the whole sector takes this call to action seriously. Jonathan, what's really kind of going on here? Because Halfon's position was, well, you can't have one size fits all. And, um, you know, some of the practice is emerging. But then two sentences later said, but everyone should adopt the mental health charter and you've got until next September to do it. So there seems to be a kind of confusion about whether or not that there ought to be, you know, kind of already a set of standards that everyone's adopting or whether or not it's just too early to do that. Yeah, uh, and, and I think this is, um, you know, it's a complex, difficult and sensitive issue to get right. And um, I, I do find myself um, sort of leaning towards the Welsh approach, but I think DK used the word consistency. And I think that um, seems absolutely critical to me um as we think about this because uh, you know as a parent myself um i would like to think that there would be a consistent approach across all universities and there would be a base level um standard of care um expectation of that care um i, I think there are two sort of issues that come to my mind quite quickly when um looking at this um firstly we, we yet again we, we we're sort of on this um dichotomy between government intervention and university autonomy um, and I don't think we look at that um, as hard as we should because we're going to come and talk about free speech later in the show but um, on free speech government seems willing to intervene um, through um, um, the statute book um, but what um, the, the minister was saying um, this week was that he's not willing to intervene around student mental health. So we seem to be prioritising free speech over student mental health, which I find quite jaw-dropping. Um, but at the other side of that, I, I have quite strong concerns that the approach is to sign up to yet another charter. Um, and in other areas of the sector, we, we see lots of um, charters um, and I do worry quite deeply that we are promoting a tick boxery culture, as I like to call it. And what I think needs to happen is um, universities to actually see um, part of their purpose, part of their social purpose, is to support young people's well-being as they transition into adulthood. Um, and that needs to be done in the context of that institution um, and the context of the student population they have. Um, so I, I don't have the answer here, um, Jim, but I guess I have a, a number of concerns about the lack of consistency into the way we're approaching this. Yes, India, this, this question on, on consistency is really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, different universities have different student bodies. And then even within a university, there are different student cohorts, different departments, different needs. You know, is, 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 is consistency something that can't be delivered? Or, or should students be able to kind of expect some, some kind of minimum? And what would, you know, what could that look like? I think there's comfort in being able to expect a minimum standard. And, you know, obviously, every university's set of students is different however it's very likely almost guaranteed that somewhere in that cohort there's going to be a group of students who are struggling with their mental health and who would actually really benefit from that from that assurance that at the very least their university has some level of duty of care over them I think that I think that that would actually be really valuable to making sure students feel safe secure and okay to live on campus um I think as well from you know from my experiences this year we have had so many sort of 
students sort of coming to the students union which obviously we can't really help them with mental health stuff we can just we can only do that advocacy piece we're not counsellors um and there just seems to be um a, a level of a level of disgruntlement um because <laughs> i can't think of a better word around the fact that university mental health services aren't at the level that that students kind of want or need them to be and i think until there's some kind of minimum expectation it risks it being too easy to say well you know this is the best we're going to get is it the best we're going to get is there you know is there something that a government intervention could do to make that minimum standard rise um i think yeah i think there's a lot of comfort that would come with with some level of consistency and and, and, i mean i think that's really interesting dk right because 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 as india notes right there's clearly in all the evidence that's kind of led up to that debate the other day a gap in expectations from, uh, you know, potentially students, but certainly parents, between what they think ought to be delivered and what what is being delivered. But there's also this real set of questions about who ought to be delivering it and whether it's right that universities deliver it. There is a danger here of um, falling into um, a common sector policy trap which is that of university exceptionalism we can look at this and think okay this is a problem only universities ever face and nobody else and um therefore we have to come up with an entirely new approach an entirely new framework um i mean if you are a young person working away from home for long periods your employer has got a duty of care over you if you join the armed forces the uh the armed forces have got a duty of care over you in some cases this is done well in some cases this is done appallingly uh badly and what i've not yet seen in the debate is um a read across to other sectors other situations or i mean what is it like being a student is it like being away at boarding school in which your uh the institution is effectively your mum and you have all that in local parentage stuff obviously not it clearly isn't is it like working away on an oil rig where you've got um a bunch of people of various ages together doing a difficult and dangerous job. It's not like that because the duty of care there is primarily about uh, physical safety, although I know they do a uh, little bits and pieces on mental health as well. But it is somewhere in the middle there. And I think a good intervention in this uh, debate would be per- would perhaps be to match expectations with other sectors, other situations, and saying, okay, in this situation, we can expect an employer or somebody else to have these kind of duties of care. It's fair to expect similar things for universities, but a university is not like this, so we wouldn't expect these duties. I think this is the way the conversation needs to go. Jonathan, one one of the things that kind of comes up quite a bit, certainly on, on on social media, it really focuses on the role of academic staff, often in personal tutor roles, but not exclusively. Um, and, and and I still frequently meet people, both on social media and in kind of real life, where there are com- really really different and also very strong opinions on on in some cases academic staff saying, well. I absolutely need to understand and embed, you know, positive mental health and well-being into the way I deliver academic support and teaching. And then others who will say, well, look, mental health is not anything to do with me. I'm an expert in engineering or, or I'm an expert in computing or whatever. Where Where is that debate and where should it be, do you think? So so I, I, I would sort of um, follow on from what DK was just saying, if you had the similar conversation in the military, how would you answer that? Is that your commanding officer or is it a welfare support officer? And I suspect it's both and mixed. Um, And I think that's kind of where we need to get to is that everybody within a university community has a responsibility to support the well-being and mental health of everybody else in that community. So that could be, you know, at the sort of one level peer-to-peer support, but it could be through your academic tutor, it could be through somebody in your stu- um, halls of residence, it could be somebody in the student union. Um, and to do that well, we, we, we need a combination of being joined up, which universities are not very good at, um, and a combination of making sure people feel confident that they have the knowledge and skills to deliver on those responsibilities but at the same time I think the other complexity here is to understand um, the very blurred boundary between if you like the university's 
um, statutory, potentially statutory duty of care, um, and the role of the health system. Um, and that, and, the, and again, that handover and handover of information and, um, and, and data, um, as need be. So, um, I think, you know, universities are understandably struggling with this issue because it is deeply complex and, 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 um, there are many different, um, boundaries around the issue, um, which make it, um, really difficult to come up with a single approach to solving it. Um, and I think the other thing that, um, we're seeing is, you know, I, I do like DK's argument there about what do other sectors do. Um, but we quite often lose sight of the sort of mass increase in, um, participation HE over the last sort of 30 years or so. Um, so that means that basically, you know, half of young people are going to, um, higher education institutions, um, in the UK. So we are now the dominant um, provider of that support for that cohort of people, um, which was not the case 30 years ago. Yeah. India, I mean, look, you know, Robert Halfon did announce um, a review of uh, a kind of national review of university student suicides to identify learning, talked about better, better analytics, talked about a new project on compassionate academic processes but you know I, I i i was presenting at a university the other day on all sorts of things including um personal tutoring and, and at the end of it i met a member of academic staff who kind of grabbed me when i was trying to get a coffee and said the thing is jim i don't know the name of the people that i teach there are so many of them and and there's there's a backdrop here that jonathan talks about which is massification the funding units you know if students haven't got a lot of money and aren't there very often and therefore are at work a lot and haven't got a lot of support from each other and there's lots and lots of students and not many staff whatever you put in place is going to be difficult to deliver isn't it yeah um and this is you know this is something that we've actually discussed at lancaster when we've been thinking about student number growth um i think that there should be a level of responsibility on universities to actually consider what they have capacity for, um, sort of on, on both sides, actually. So, you know, do they have enough in place to deal with all of the problems that might come up in the student cohort that they have? And on the other side of that, when looking at recruitment, is it, you know, is it actually fair and right and ethical to to continue to drive towards growing student numbers if, all you're going to be doing is sizing up and sizing up, but not actually, not actually matching that with with your resourcing. DK, it, 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 on, on this debate about whether or not there ought to be kind of universal standards, I guess one of the things that some people would say is that look, and certainly DFE would say in other contexts that universities can choose their own. I think they said in a quote this week, business models. That kind of implies that look, you might enrol somewhere and they offer X, and they might you might enrol somewhere else and and they offer Y. Should should is it okay? for the kind of level of mental health support or whatever to be a kind of feature of a provider you choose? Or should should we move towards, you know, absolute minimums that might not match the student body? Well, I think we can have both, you know. I mean, I think there can be a baseline. Um, as we said right at the top, a set of common expectations. This is the basic practical stuff you should expect from any higher education provider. And if not, we'll send in the office for students uh, to have a look and sort you out. But um, as much as I'm slightly anxious about the idea of um, universities competing on the quality of their mental health provision, I I know there are some providers that are really um, good at this stuff for people that have pre-existing conditions or other conditions that are often linked to um, mental health issues. there are, it is, I think, fairly well known that there are particular institutions that do that kind of thing really well, particular courses within particular institutions. Uh, there's um, the child of um, a friend of mine who has recently chosen a biomedical course primarily because of the way they can support her um, issues with um, neurodiversity and with mental health. The two often do go together. And this particular institution, apparently, I haven't checked it out myself, are really good at this kind of stuff. So um, it's the same as the standard office for students argument, um, really. Um, I mean, you can have places that um, do that in the best possible way, and that might be attractive to certain groups of students, uh, but you should really be able to set 
a minimum standard. We set minimum standards in lots of other areas. I mean, some of which, like the kind of jobs um, graduates get when they leave university. Universities have no control over whatsoever. So, so this is something university. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've got minimum standards there, but I mean, universities have direct control over the fact that they can do the basics. They can get the basics right on mental health. So why not have a minimum standard on that? Now, Jonathan, we've 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 fallen into the same trap today that um, I often accuse MPs of, and certainly I accused MPs of in the debate um, in Parliament this week, which is almost exclusively talking about universities. And, and actually, there was a moment when Robert Halfon talked about colleges, but he clearly was talking about FE colleges in, in terms of the stuff he said. The reality, of course, is that there's certainly in England there's over four hundred providers on the OFS register, many of which are very very small. And it's, you know, I mean, I've visited some of them. It's hard to believe they've got anywhere to sit of a Tuesday lunchtime, let alone a mental health service. So, you know, what what should we do about that kind of long tail of providers? So I think I think that that expands the conversation into how do we support young people um, and how do we support um, mental health, um, well-being and care for young people? Um, so... It, you know, I, and I think there's another dimension here, which is um, whether you have um, effectively residential students or commuting students. So I don't know the data, but I'm guessing quite a lot of those um, colleges in the long tail are based on um, students who live in the locality um, and go to those um, colleges, whilst a lot of what we're talking about, though not all of it, um, in the higher education space will be um, the sort of provision of care um, when you have students who are resident um, on campus or resident in the vicinity of the um, institution. So I, I do think there's a subtle um, and quite nuanced um, difference there. But, you know, the, the bigger question for society is um, how do we provide adequate um, well-being and mental health provision to young people, full stop. And whether those young people are working on oil rigs, whether they're in the army, whether they're at universities, whether they're in further education colleges, um, they all should be um, have equal access um, and the right to equal access to high-quality um, provision and care. Um, and I think thinking that through... Um, those um, institutional um, responsibilities in those contexts is really, really important. But I'd almost um, turn the debate on its head and say, let's strive to have a, a mental health system that is fit for purpose for young people. India, you'll, you'll recall on our, our, our travels around Europe earlier in the year, so India was one of the uh, presidents who was on our little coach tour around uh, the low countries and Germany earlier on in the year that we do with students' unions every year, that, that there were actually quite a few universities where it didn't feel like there was lots of mental health provision being delivered by the university but lots of peer delivered stuff a much stronger sense of um, associate association and community and, and obviously we've fallen into another trap today which is to talk about what universities should provide kind of directly but there's a really important role isn't there for students to support each other that you know really got exacerbated during the pandemic and may still be a problem in a kind of cost of living crisis i definitely think that there is a role for peer-to-peer -peer being sort of encouraged more when we're talking about student mental health i think that you know a, a lot of the time actually the only people who really understand what you're going through as a student who is suffering with with their mental health during their studies is another student who's suffering with their mental health during their studies. Um, and I think that there's a lot more value that maybe maybe students' unions have more of a part to play in this, in sort of encouraging and fostering this on campuses. Uh, I mean, I, I remain to be fascinated by everything that we saw in Europe and how, how switched on and how willing and how eager and enthusiastic all of the student leaders that we met um, in the Low Countries tour were, it didn't even occur to them that they wouldn't be doing all of the work and sort of picking up the legwork in terms of delivering the stuff that they wanted to do. They just did it. Um, it's definitely something that's influenced my work when I've come home. And it was really quite inspiring in terms of how much they just kind of got on with the peer-to-peer -peer stuff that this particular conversation around student mental health could be something where we could be a little bit more European on. Um, yeah, really interesting. Blimey. Um and, and then DK, just before we move on, this stuff in in, in Wales, where where's that going to go next? Where are we on on kind of CETA and the new um, condition of registration, all that stuff? 
So, Wes, I mean, CETA's got a chair, a chief executive, and a deputy chair. It's not currently got any staff, as far as I know. Uh, people are going to be gradually transferring people across from the Welsh Government and from HEFCU. Uh, it's got a lot of work to do. If you think back to the early days of the Office of Students in England, there'll be a lot of consultations out there, and I'd imagine the precise wording of this condition is going to turn up in some consultation, hopefully not as long as the consultations that we got uh, um, during the setup of the Office for Students, or indeed subsequently from the Office for Students. Um, but we uh, can expect to see this, uh, which has been expressed now as a clear ministerial priority, uh, backed by an independent report, um, an independent report. We can expect to see this front and centre in the registration conditions for uh, the new CETA. And this is actually really encouraging stuff that even though the sector will get the chance to have its say and it's reasonable to me expect there will be a pushback on institutional differences and how can you hold um, an FE college um, delivering f- franchise provision to a few students to the same standards as you hold the University of Cardiff, say. Um, uh, but I think it's pretty clear this is going to happen in some form and it's good news for students and good news wow. for parents too. Well, fascinating stuff. Uh, plenty more on the site about uh, both uh, Wales stuff and also the wider debate around duty of care. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Grace Gottlieb. I'm Head of Research Policy at UCL. And this week on Wonky, I've been blogging about the Science, Innovation and Technology Committee's report on reproducibility and research integrity. I explore the committee's welcome focus on the importance of research transparency, including the recommendation to make transparency a prerequisite of top scoring research in the next research excellence framework. I also consider the potential unintended consequences of the committee's headline recommendation for reproducibility to be a condition of grants awarded for empirical research. It's not possible to guarantee reproducibility, and whether others can reproduce your research is not fully in your control. So if we penalise researchers whose research findings don't immediately or clearly reproduce, we risk discouraging researchers from sharing their full methods and data. While reproducibility remains a crucial benchmark for trusting research findings, transparency should be our benchmark for trusting researchers themselves. Now, next up, uh, we're used to the British media reporting on higher education in, with their particular fascinations with um, trigger warnings and so on. But this week, we got an interesting intervention from across the pond, Jonathan. Yes, this is a topic which I don't think we've um, often discussed on the Wonky Show, but I suspect we'll be increasingly discussing in the future. Um, and as you said, Jim, um, the idea of franchising hit the headlines this week with a New York Times expose on the Oxford Business School. As the headline says, it is not that Oxford, but a relatively unknown provider that, according to the New York Times, is making millions by inappropriately recruiting students through the incentive of access to the student loan book and, critically, the maintenance loan element of that. But to me, the issue here is the expansion of the partnership provision, and in particular partnership provision with for-profit providers in the UK. And DK actually looked at this back in April on a wonky blog, Um, and identified that there are basically two routes that this um, can occur. Um, The first is where a provider develops a course but contracts it out to another provider, and the second is where a provider validates a course that is developed and delivered elsewhere. Um, OFS, as it acknowledges, has a bit of a data blind spot on the size of the issue, Um, but if you look at um, the subcontracting by OFS registered providers, that has increased threefold from around 30,000 undergraduate students in 2018 to around 90,000 in 2021. I think there are two big issues, at least um, come to mind at this stage. One is around quality assurance. Um, Whilst the provider who contracts out or validates provision is accountable for the academic quality, those carrying out the actual teaching may themselves not be subject to OFS regulation. And the second is the core point made by the New York Times, inasmuch as the various providers could exploit the partnership option to gain access to the student loan book, boosting their coffers and their partners' coffers um, through student fees, and secondly, misleading um, possibly underqualified students to take out maintenance loans as a route to easy money. At the same time, however, I do think we need to be careful about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There are good reasons for partnership models, not least as it opens up new and more flexible forms of provision, which could increase access, allowing for more innovation in the sector. 
Now, now, now DK, the, the, the fascinating stuff, Jonathan. DK, ex- explain just, 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 just so that we're clear. Who has to be on the register? Who doesn't have to be on the register? You know, how does this all work? You know, how is it that when I search for Oxford Business College on the OFS re- on the OFS website, it doesn't come up? Uh, you can choose or otherwise to be registered um, with the Office for Students if you are delivering entirely uh, franchised uh, provision. So there are some providers on the register currently that are just delivering franchise provision that are so, on so, the register. So, so hold on. So that is franchising from one uh, OFS provider to another OFS provider, right? Yeah, that can happen. There's evidence of that in there. Um, uh, there are s- s- some providers that um, do this because they I mean, they just genuinely want to be the best they can be, and they um, actually voluntarily sign up to the Office of Students uh, so they can reassure their students that they're doing things properly. There's lots of places, because you don't have to, if you are just doing uh, franchised uh, uh, provision, because effectively you're delivering somebody else's course and somebody else is doing the quality assurance, uh, which means that... The person you're franchising from is the one that needs to be registered. Also, they're awarding the degree, which is a separate but linked issue. It is um, a surprisingly complicated system. Back in the early days of the OFS, we're going to have all of the providers that were delivering any kind of uh, provision at any level on um, uh an OFS registration category called BASIC, which would just mean that the OFS actually knew that they existed and knew roughly what they were up to. That was scrapped early on in the, the uh, pre-set of the OFS, which leaves us with the sense that there are lots of providers out there that are delivering higher education on behalf of registered providers. And we nationally, we've got no easy way of knowing who they are. I mean, you and I have sat there in uh, team meeting stuff a number of times and looked at a provider and think, okay, whose courses are are they um, delivering? And you get all kinds of anomalies like um, um, places that are in England that are delivering courses that are validated by and are awarded by institutions in Wales. Uh, There's a little loophole there, which is absolutely uh, fascinating. But as um, Jonathan says, it is um, a data gap. We should know this stuff. And I know the OFS are gradually working towards the idea that in their size and shape of the sector stuff, they'll be able to see, okay, this provider is franchising out this many students and this is where they actually are so we'll be able to look at it at that level of granularity we can't but, quite do that at the moment but, but so, so, so just so we're clear dk on, on the oxford business college example if a student applies to oxford business college we don't have a data set do we for oxford business college's kind of satisfaction or outcomes and presumably when everyone gets their tef awards later in the summer the Oxford Business College will be able to say, well, franchising university here got gold and franchising university here got silver, but won't actually say what Oxford Business College got. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Because if you're not actually registered with the OFS in England, you're not going to be in uh, TEF um, and you're not going to appear on the B3 benchmark. So the only way we can see the experiences of these students is by, and I think we've got a piece uh, coming out early next week, which you'll be able to read shortly after you hear this, if you're listening, um, that will look at the best of the data we can see so far. We can see where students are taught by somebody on the register, but are not um, are not on a course actually validated by that institution and we can see in instances where institutions that we know about that are validating courses elsewhere but we don't know where they are but that is the gap the office for students have promised uh publicly and to me that they're looking into this they wanted to give universities a year's gap in order to sort out their own data which raises the terrifying specter that there are universities out there that are validating courses that have students on that are registered to them and they don't know what they're doing um but this hopefully should appear in the autumn now now india from from a sort of um student point of view particularly an applicant point of view i, I guess 
what the press and to some extent ministers imagine is the sort of clued up 16 and 17 year old on you know being taken by their parents to multiple open days with a big spreadsheet <laughs> looking at the league tables weighing up their options but you know the, the new york times paints this picture of a very different kind of applicant who you know probably doesn't know that you know all that the, those stats are, are out there or, or in this case not out there and a sense that courses are being advertised you know, on the basis that they're full-time courses, but actually you can get away with doing them for two days a week was one of the quotes. And then and then another one was this sense that, um, you know, you'll get lots of money in your bank account. Now, you know, should we be worried about the way that some of these programmes are being marketed? There are a lot of people, a lot of students who will be looking at going into higher education who are a bit more vulnerable and potentially don't have the support in place that they might not have that sort of family knowledge. For example, they might be a first in family um, with none of their family having actually engaged with higher education before. You know, it, it kind of looks like this nice, shiny, attractive offer, but then you get to the end of your three years and you've got thousands of pounds in debt and yeah, a, lot, a and lifetime of commitment financial commitment yeah. <laughs> on those financial commitments jonathan i mean i guess the other aspects of the finances here was the allegation that oxford business college is kind of making a lot of money i was looking at um, a, a similar private provider yesterday that is um you know not on the register and is in partnership with three or four universities where the turnover was over 50 million quid that was all intuition fees. That was after those partnership universities had kind of taken their cut. And the, the, the profit was over 20 million in, in one academic year. And I was thinking, you know, it's that old thing, isn't it? Where if you accept private providers, then, um, I don't, you, you know, we, 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 there aren't hard and fast rules on how much money you can make out of it as long as the experience is good and the outcomes are good. So I don't know what. I don't know what bad looks like, but it just feels like 20 million profit off 50 million quid in tuition fees. Feels like a lot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing which we haven't talked about, but you just picked up here, Jim, is the axis around for-profit and not-for-profit in this, which I do think gets to motivation. So as DK said, I think there are some really good um, examples where a franchise model um, can deliver, bring higher education provision to cold spots. Um, and such like and we need to as we sort of um, navigate this complex debate we got to make sure that we that motivation is is sort of protected um, but what seems to be coming out of the article in the New York Times is actually a, a motivation that is um, is financial um, and what sticks in my fear I've got no problem to a degree with for-profit provision um, but I do have a sort of um, concern about for-profit provision that is based off the student loan book which is underwritten by the taxpayer um it seems to me that's effectively a public subsidy um and if that is generating profits along the lines that you just articulated um and dividends eye-watering dividends then um something is wrong in the system um and we need to find a way of closing down that that loophole but as we um, as we sort of do that, we should keep in mind that we um, need to protect this idea of franchising because there are lots of positive um, elements to it, um, which would be a shame to lose. Good. Now the sun's out and our mind turns to festivals. Mark is here with details of one of our own that will have better toilets. The Festival of Higher Education is coming. This November, Wonky and the University of London will welcome you to Senate House for two amazing days of one-to-one -one conversations with HE leaders, set-piece debates and insights from journalists, policymakers and experts. You'll hear from speakers inside and outside the sector, take part in amazing interactive sessions, learn about new research, data and ideas, and meet colleagues old and new. All equipping you with the fresh thinking and insights ready to take back and share with your universities and teams. It's going to be an unmissable event for anyone with an interest in the future of UK higher education. That's 7th and 8th of November in London. Early bird tickets are available only until the end of June, so do hurry if you want to take advantage of these. Find out more and book your tickets at thefestivalofhe.com or follow the links from Wonky. We can't wait to see you in November. Hi, I'm Michael Salmon, Wonky's news editor. One significant bit of news this week has been an update from the Competition and Markets Authority, that's the CMA, on the application of consumer protection law to the relationship between students and higher education providers. 
This new guidance will make it harder for providers to make major changes to courses of the sort that we have seen due to, for example, the pandemic and industrial action. Students' express agreement must be obtained for major deviations from the pre-contract information which informs students' decision-making, for example, um, what's on university web pages. The update from the CMA now makes clear that this rule should apply to information about how the course is delivered, who teaches on it, how many option modules there are, and so on. So if a provider wants to make a major change but cannot agree a course of action with the student, the student could take them to court to enforce their rights. As the guidance says, it remains open to the student to claim common law remedies for breach of contract, which could include damages for loss. On the site this week, Jim has set out what this all means, both for providers and students. Do check that out. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now, this week, Wonky has been having a conversation about interdisciplinary higher education. India, tell us more. So there are a couple of things here. Um, I think we're considering the prevalence and also the value of interdisciplinary higher education courses. These usually look like students being enrolled onto quote-unquote combined studies degrees where they'll learn two or three subject disciplines. The numbers are fairly low and they're largely made up of part-time and distance learners. So I think some of the questions here are, why aren't the numbers higher? And what does interdisciplinarity actually offer to the degree outcome, to the learning experience and to the graduate workforce? Yes, Jonathan, uh, uh, it's the, 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 one of the things that I think is fascinating here is that David Willits in, in a university education was... I, I seem to remember there's a whole chunk of it where he's kind of banging on about how early people have to kind of specialise in the British education system. <laughs> That's probably a problem for our economy. Was he right? Uh, yeah, my opinion would be, yes, he is right. I, I think um, sort of two thoughts about this. One, I, as a person who hadn't really thought too much about this issue um, before um, this conversation, um, was the parallels with the same debate around research. Um, so I think there's a bunch of, um, I think we're using the wrong language here. Um, these aren't interdisciplinary degrees, they're multidisciplinary degrees. And we make that same mistake in, in research, um, all the time. But I do think the, the, um, aspiration is, is right as same in research. The aspiration for interdisciplinary research is good. Um, but there's sort of two, um, pressures working against the idea. And I think in the context of education, one of those is that subject selectivity in our education system at A-levels. Um, although I did just have a quick look at the number of IB students, which is much more um, multidisciplinary in approach. Um, and that is increasing year on year, but it's still um, about 5% of um, total A-levels. So it's a, a, a small number. Um, and as a consequence of that selectivity, I think a, a student who um, has studied A-level history and wants to do a degree in history um, is much more sort of focused on the history than the interdisciplinarity. Um, and then the second thing I think is is really difficult because it's all around the academic incentive systems. And um, this is picked up in the blogs, who's going to do um, the teaching? And, um, you know, in universities for good reasons, um, your reputation is built by being a monodiscipline expert. Um, you know, we value um, specialists more than we value generalists. Um, so, you know, I don't want to be a naysayer, uh, but I do think this the sort of move to multidisciplinarity was, you know, absolutely supported. I think it's quite structurally difficult. 
Yes, I mean, th- th- there's 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 some level of, of, of critique on the site this week, DK, on 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 the, on the concept. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's an interesting one to me. Is you see a lot of quite vocational single subject degrees, uh, especially in the sciences um, or in really practical kind of um, job real based social sciences looking at the graduates at the end and thinking okay we've made all these spectacular chemists but they cannot write for toffee in in the terms that um, a regular person would understand so uh, we've get we're getting a kind of soft interdisciplinarity in which say medical students would do an arts uh kind of module just to make them more rounded as people just to give them um a better sense of expression other ways to talk to people um or we are getting people who are doing say uh sociology um degrees have got a little extra kind of drop-in bit that's all data science that you're like you know if you're doing this stuff you're probably going to need to know your um way around r or tableau or any of the big uh statistics um data approaches and i mean that kind of thing is happening increasingly and it's probably uh kind of um, best understood with reference to the schools debate. So there's a whole bunch of pressure groups in and around the school sector that are saying, okay, pupils aren't learning anything about this. They should have a little um, a little lesson every week about this particular random subject, and then everything would be better. Prime example, something like um, citizenship. And it is possible to make up an entire school week just of things that schools think tanks have asked for in that um, that needs to be squeezed in there. Uh, I think we're starting to appreciate the value of students having at least a broader frame of um, reference um, rather than being a direct specialist. There's lots of um, university statements out there about what they can expect from uh, graduates that talk about the idea of a t-shaped graduate that have got a real depth of understanding in one field but i've got a wider understanding in uh cognate fields so they're uh better able to communicate better able to talk about the kind of stuff that they're doing so that kind of stuff um i think it is the coming thing um it's happening already the other thing that i mean i was writing about was i think it's more of a 90s idea or early noughties idea that the that um combined studies you could just pick any random set of modules from what university offers and you could tie it together somehow with a project and then get, um, get a degree out the end of it. In, in India, there's a, there's a little bit of this at, uh, you'll remember the, the place you went to in the Netherlands in Twente, um, although that's mainly a kind of STEM university. Although there's another place that we went on the, on the following trip where, where we were... Uh, kind of a, uh, about 20 miles west of um, Copenhagen, where that, there's a genuinely interdisciplinary kind of component to every undergraduate program. So, you know, uh, the, the, um, a, a huge project that students have to do, all undergraduates have to do, where they very deliberately are mixing up, you know, STEM students and humanities students and so on. And, and, and obviously, in, in the UK system, normally, you know, if you're doing geography, you're hanging out with geography students, and you'll only really hang out with students from other subjects in, I don't know, a club or in a in a house or, or, or whatever. Do you do you get a sense that students would value this kind of thing or be intimidated by it and would just hate it? I would actually be really interested in how that actually that operates for students in that in that institution. I think that I think I'd value it personally. Um, I mean, I was a theatre student, so I kind of was very much in the circles of the people who took art subjects. Um, I mean, even when it came to my sort of my extracurricular stuff, I was, um, I was, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was in the theatre society. So I was just still with theatre people. Um, and then even on my college JCR, because of where the college was on campus, it's where all of the departments that were in the, in the sort of faculty of arts and social sciences were. So I literally very rarely actually ended up encountering people from, from other faculties which is just bizarre because we're all part of this sort of university community and there actually isn't that much crossover yeah. and um, i guess the danger is that when lancaster was much smaller it would have been much easier to kind of bump into and hang out with and <laughs> you know what I mean? once, once universities get really big and departments get really big it, it may well be much harder to kind of hang out with and learn from and think about how other people think from other disciplines yeah um and lancaster are actually kind of funny with with this one so 
they don't do it as much now, but when I joined, they one of the sort of USPs for Lancaster was their minor system. So every student in their first year could pick any subjects to do as a minor. So, you know, you've got a lot of the time it would kind of align with what you're already doing. So I I did theatre and English late in my first year. Um, but then you'll meet some students who were doing like like maths and fine art and it's it's like what why <laughs> is that the choice that you've made um and it, it does beg the question of well yeah why not and i think that's kind of the attitude that a lot of people do have when coming to lancaster in first year but then it does beg the question of what value has that actually added i imagine in some cases a lot because you know you're in two very different spheres going from your maths classroom to the fine art studios you're mixing with different types of people um and then, you know, I think about my own situation where I'm going on to do a graduate job that has nothing to do whatsoever with my undergrad. And part of me wonders whether I'd be more well equipped for that and more ready to enter that very, very different atmosphere and work environment if I had had a little bit more experience of, you know, something that isn't the theatre studios. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHG, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Jonathan, India, DK and news editor Michael Salmon who makes the show happen behind the scenes. Mark will be here next week. And until then, stay wonky. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.